So I don't know if you know this about me guys, but I'm kind of a quiet guy. Don't usually <laughs> talk in big groups and stuff Wait. like that. This is gonna be a dumb interjection. I had like yeah. two scripts written out for the intro, and it was gonna be like I my guess for the movies that shaped you. For Kyle, it was probably Super 8 because it was filmed in Ohio, and for Kenny, it was probably 1959's The Quiet Man. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Board Game Box Office, a Table Knots podcast about movies, board games, and all the space in between. I'm Max, and I'm joined in this episode by Kyle, who's still yet to win as the River Folk in Root, and Kenny, who I'm just discovering doesn't even log his movies on Letterboxd. Like, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed, Kenny. We are who we are because of our environments and the things that influence us. I think it's fair to say that even the games we play and the movies we watch have shaped us to one degree or another. Later this episode, we'll discuss the games and movies that made us. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about the games we've been playing and the movies we've been watching. Kyle? Uh, I've been playing Root, and I've been playing it very well, thank you. <laughs> All I right. don't know if I'd say very well. You, no. did, you still didn't win. That's true. Um, so, uh, I'm very bad with the otters. They're the only faction I haven't won with, despite playing the game for years upon years. I cannot win with the otters. Uh, the most recent game we played, I got to 29 and the other factions were the Vagabond who doesn't buy anything, the Woodland Alliance who doesn't buy anything, and Dolan who had a thumb up his butt the entire game. (laughs) So... So getting to 29 with the otters in that game state is like really getting to like 40. Uh, To be fair, Kyle, to be fair, they left everything open for you just to come try and stop me. Like, what are you talking about? They left the board open. I had no warriors. It didn't matter. We're okay. We're way, we're way (laughs) off. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our Root podcast. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. <laughs> it is a game we've been playing. I mean. <laughs> but besides Root, I've been talking about, uh, I've been playing another game that's related to water, uh, Underwater Cities um, by Vladimir Suchi. So, <laughs> because of the otters. Yeah. I was like, how is, how is Root connected to water? It was a very loose connection, okay? But, you know. As long as one person got it, that's all I care about. Um, yeah, so Underwater Cities is by Vladimir Suchi, and it came out around the same time as Terraforming Mars, and it got compared quite a bit. And I, I think that's a little bit fair, um, but not quite. Like, I think you have room for both. And um, so what Underwater Cities is, is it's a tableau builder, engine builder, um, but it's also a worker placement game. And the way it works is there are three different action uh, like sections that you can go to, green, yellow, and red. And every turn, you're going to place one of your workers in one of those sections. And when you place a worker, you're also going to play a card. If your card color matches the worker placement section, you also get to play that card into your tableau. So you really want to pair that stuff. When you go to a green action, you want to be playing a green card. When you go to a red action, you want to play a red card. And uh, the game is set up, and it even tells you this, where the green actions are very weak, but the green cards are very good. And the red actions are very good, but the red cards are very weak. And then yellow is middle and middle. Um, so it gives you a lot of interesting trade-offs and like you want to do certain actions, but if you don't have that color card, you just like throw a card away and discard it to draw a new one. 
or do you just wait on that? And then it also has like your own personal player board has like your underwater city that you're building. And it becomes like a networking game where you're building tunnels and building other cities. Um, so while the similarities are there with terraforming Mars and that it is an engine building tableau, I think it does so many things different in that it's worker placement. You have your own personal board, you have networking. And at this point in our, in board gaming, like every game nowadays is some type of tableau builder. So it's really like you can have multiple of those. And honestly, I've played terraforming Mars a lot. I would say I've played it in the twenties. Um, in underwater cities, I've only played one and a half times. And I think underwater cities, uh, excites me more to this point, but I think that could just be the newness of it. But I also think it's like relatively easier to get into. Your turns are much more simple. You don't have a lot of iconography that you have to deal with. You don't have to worry about 18 different tags. Um, but underwater cities is a really good game. One I would suggest if you like medium Euro games and then, uh, Vladimir Suchi is a pretty popular designer. It's probably my favorite game of his I've played. I've also played Praga Kaput Regni, which is fine. And Last Will, which uh, I'm like so-so on. Um, so yeah, if you are interested in any type of tableau builder, Earth, Wingspan, Terraforming Mars, uh, Underwater Cities is one uh, to get into, I think. Yeah, I like Underwater Cities quite a bit. Um, I I do think that like it... Oh, I was going to say something really smart, and then it just, just faded out of my mind. <laughs> Good, our, our podcast doesn't um, need smart comments. We need yeah. as many dumb comments as possible. <clears throat> no, we, we make enough of those ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really like Underwater Cities. I think it's like, I think you can also own both Terraforming Mars and Underwater Cities. I think the thing I really like about Underwater Cities is that it's uh, so tight. Because there's like an aspect where you're basically building out the city on your player board. And like getting the route from one end to the other is really tough. Like, yeah. you can, there's so many failure points where you can just mess up. Um, so, and I never really feel that tightness in terraforming Mars or, um, that at least that kind of feeling, but in underwater cities, I'm always just under that. I, I always feel so poor every round. Um, and which is, you know, stressful, but like in a good way. But. I think I care more about what other players are doing in underwater cities than I have in terraforming Mars. I think terraforming Mars, like, well, I do like you are racing for goals and you are trying to get up the three different global parameters uh, you're trying to race for those as well. So there's the interaction in Terraforming Mars. Don't get me wrong, but underwater cities, I felt like, Oh, I really want that action. But uh, one of these guys also want that. So like, do I go now or can I, can I wait for it? So I think that's one of the things I really enjoyed about it. Have you played with the expansion? Uh, Kenny new discoveries? Uh, no, I, I own, I haven't, I haven't broken it out though since I picked it up, but I, I heard it's like adds a lot to the game and changes it up quite a bit. So we did play with it and it does add a couple of things that I really like. First off the dual player, the dual layered player boards is an instant yeah. upgrade, um, which is really just a reason to own it in itself. Um, but it also starts with some cards that's like uh prelude cards kind of like, so you, oh, okay. instead of playing 10 round, 10 rounds, you're playing nine rounds because your first round, you're just like taking a prelude card, like in terraforming Mars. So it kicks off your engine right away. Love that. Um, also your, uh, your starting assistant, you know, that card that kind of sucks, that starting action yeah. card. Now there's like a whole deck of them where it gives you like a uh, variable player power um, and better actions. So it makes that card is better. Um, now, those two things are enough. I think those things make the expansion. Um, the new mechanism in the expansion is like this, uh, this museum board 
and uh, you get to play. You have five different museum pieces, and you get to play onto the museum board uh, whenever you build out to that in your city. So, like one of the tunnel spaces may have a museum piece. One of the cities has a museum piece. So when you just build there, you get to do that. We weren't thrilled with that because it was just like a. Hmm. It was just it felt kind of tacked on. Just easier ways to get get stuff. Um, but also like the the third, fourth, and fifth museum pieces that you find are like equate to like some in-game scoring stuff and they are not equal like if you're the first person to get to stage four you can get like 30 some points and if you're the last person to get to stage four you're getting like three so it just created a race for those that i didn't really care for and if we when we play underwater cities with that expansion again like i i honestly might just leave the museum board out and like we probably won't play with it yes it's a pretty modular when that Aspects. It is, yeah, yeah. Everything is modular in it, which I I appreciate. Yeah, that's cool. I've never played it. Shocker, I know. <laughs> a midway you euro, you don't say. <laughs> I mean, like one day, like terraforming Mars and underwater cities in one day, your your brain's gonna be fried at the end of it. Yeah, uh, it sounds like a terrible day. Well, no, it doesn't, Mac. Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> they're, they're both pretty good games. Kenny, what have you been playing? Uh, so a few days ago, we broke out Whitehall Mystery. Uh, this is a hidden movement game. Um, this came out in 2017. Uh, one player plays as Jack the Ripper, um, basically going in, into the four quadrants of uh, a map of London and going for a kill, right? And the other players are playing as the, the London Guard who are trying to find Jack the Ripper. Um, and it is a pretty like typical um, hidden movement game, like something at Scotland Yard or Spectre Ops. Um, or it's really just a game of a cat and mouse. But I think like Whitehall Mystery um, is really, really tightly designed in a way so that there's a constant sense of tension. And this especially it really builds to a really strong climax at the end. Um, it does in a couple really interesting ways. And the first part is that the Jack the Ripper has to go to three specific spots on the map, um, which are basically in the three different areas of the board. So maybe the first portion of the game, Jack might be getting away with murder, literally. Um, pretty easily, but as you, everything gets funneled toward that endpoint, everything becomes much more tighter. Your resources are more constrained, um, and it makes this just really like interesting, intense experience as the game goes on. And I've played it a few times now, and like every single game, it really comes down to the, those last few moves that are kind of the make it or break it point. I think another really great aspect of the game is that it is, I think, so hidden movement games are a, game, a genre that I think should be more popular, especially among like uh, newcomers to the board game. Uh, hobby, um, basically because it's it's so easy to describe, right? Like this is a game of hide and seek, a game of cat and mouse. But I found like most of the hidden movement games tend to be pretty heavy, pretty heavyweight. Like Fury Dracula takes three plus hours to Ugh, play. Hate that game. Um, yeah, and so I think it it tends to get gated off as um, a genre that's a bit more inaccessible because there aren't as many like lighter weight or medium weight games that like people could jump into. I think Whitehall Mystery is like the perfect answer to that because it is like a pretty easy game to teach, pretty easy game to table, but still has like all of the the puzzle that you want in a game like this um, without all the added complexity. Um, so that is my report on why Whitehall Mystery is a good game. <laughs> yeah, this was my first time playing Whitehall Mystery, and I'm a big fan of hidden movement games. Uh, I haven't played that many, though, so I was very happy to try another one. One of my favorites of all time is Mind Management, which is certainly on the heavier side in comparison to this. 
And I, I totally agree that part of the reason that Whitehall Mystery is so good is that it is so simplistic. You have like one-time player abilities, but other than that, it's it's pretty bare bones what you can do. And so it's it's not easy to math out because obviously you can still outmaneuver them like wild, but it's one of those that there aren't so many things standing in the way of finding the other person that it like bogs you down. So right. I think it moved pretty quickly. Um the one time use powers were were great and made the puzzle vastly more interesting. You know, your boating ability and your ability to hop through the courtyards and things like that really added a lot to like where is this guy? Where can he be? Yeah. It made, made the puzzle like way more uncertain. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it it also added some fun moments where we you, you boated and we were like, wait a minute. He <laughs> He couldn't have done this. He couldn't have gotten there in time. He's boating over here, faking us out. And so it was so much fun to to feel smart about some, some of the things that we were discovering. Um, I did think that, and I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is something that'll happen often, but the ending was still fun, but it was anticlimactic in a sense because you basically just couldn't win. Uh, and it was one of those things where it was getting late in the night. So it was just kind of like, guys it's impossible for me to win right now. Like we should just wrap. I, I literally can't get to where I'm going. And it was, it wasn't a detriment. It didn't take away from the game because I had so much fun leading up to that. And it was still exciting that, you know, we did block your path enough Yeah, that we stopped you from getting there. But I can see where some people would be turned off by that. Yeah. I, I find most games actually end in a much more dramatic fashion. Like, you know, they usually, you, you, you know, uh, Jack the Ripper can, put down that final red disc and end the game or uh, the investigators do a, an arrest, arrest and, and nail it, right? That was actually just kind of a weird scenario of like where Dylan got right in my path. I couldn't make the move I needed. And it was so late. I was like, I think we're, we're done. So Yeah. And that's fair, though. I, I still very much enjoyed it. It makes me want to try the Letters from Whitechapel, um, which is actually ranked quite a bit higher on BGG than Whitehall Mystery. It's more I complex. Two and three thirty six. Yeah, I I think the thing is like Whitehall Mystery is a better game. Like I think like Letters from Whitechapel is longer. I think it's just like it's one of those things like it's an older game, so it tends to have a higher rating on BGG just yeah, because it's yeah. in there longer and like. But Whitehall Mystery is like I think superior game. It's like much more streamlined than just yeah. Yeah, Would Whitehall Mystery that- was uh, Whitehall Mystery was like the sequel because it was like to answer the questions uh, for the letter of Whitechapel's like problems, right? It was just like, okay, okay. this game is too long and uh, too complicated for what it is. So like, how do we simplify it? So another another game that I, I hear talked about pretty positively is Ravensburger's Jaws, which came out in 2019. Has anyone, have either of you had the opportunity to play that? No. No. But okay. I've I've also heard good things when it first came out, but like I don't even see it at Target anymore. Yeah, I'm not sure how in print it is, but I mean it's it's like top one thousand on BGG, and it's it's you know uh, letters from Whitechapel is two point eleven weight scale, and this is two point seventeen. So I have to imagine they're both like in that very entry easy to play type hidden. You know game. what? You know what game is getting a ton of buzz right now? That's like uh this hidden movement is Sniper Elite. Yep, I was about to talk about that. Sniper Elite Sniper looks Elite. great. Yeah, it looks awesome. I'm again, I'm a big fan of Hidden Movement and both Sniper Elite and Beast, which hasn't Beast, released yeah. just yet. But yeah, those good. two are the ones that I'm like, I really want to try these games so bad. I just love Hidden Movement. I don't know. I just, I mean, mind management was like when I was playing it, 
when we first got it and we played it like four times in like the first month or something, I was like, dude, this is one of my favorite games of all time. Like I freaking love this. But then it just, we haven't played it. And so it's obviously falling because we haven't played it, but mind management was awesome. I just really, really like hidden movement games. I think they create such good tension and just like such great moments um, in a really like smart way. Um, that doesn't feel like kind of like cheap, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, I, uh, I've only ever played Whitehall Mystery in terms of like hidden movement games. Oh no, that's not true. Fury of Dracula, which I despise. Um, but Whitehall Mystery, uh, is, is great. I like it. I've never seen Jack the Ripper win though. I've played like six or seven times and I do think it's a little bit tougher for Jack the Ripper to win than the, than the police. And I've actually never seen it come down to like the last few turns of the, the third step. Usually what happens in our games is the investigators are pretty close to pinning them down at mid to late stage two. There was one time where where uh, my friend Kevin was playing as Jack the Ripper and we caught him in five turns. And <laughs> that was a super memorable moment. And I remember like uh, sometimes he'll put notes in Board Game Geek about the plays he had and he just put I'm an embarrassment to the hobby. <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious because it was, and we still joke about that to this day. So like, even when the game isn't like super close and super tight, like you guys have had the experience of, it still creates fun. Cause if you catch somebody in five turns, like that is just such a, an incredible feat. And one yeah. thing that the game does uh, really well is it gives everybody like little treats along the way. Right. So like if you like search a place and that and Jack the Ripper puts down a yellow token, it's just such a, a great moment for like the investigators like, oh, my gosh, we we got him on the trail. Or <laughs> when you're Jack, when you're the Jack the Ripper player and you've like made your movement and you just sit there for 20 minutes, listen to the other three to talk about what they're going to do. And you're just like, these guys are morons. They're not close <laughs> to what I'm doing. And so I will all say of that I was just glad. so fun. I will say I was glad we played it at uh, at three rather than four, perhaps, because Doolin and I controlled three investigators mm -hmm. amongst the two of us, and it allowed us to basically like designate that third investigator to whoever's true investigator was farthest away. Because I do feel like there are moments in that game where you're like on the other side of the board and you're kind of just worthless. Yeah, definitely. And it's just like... Well, I can't do anything. So in, in that instance, there was an instance where, where Doolin was pretty much useless. And we were like, all right, you, you control the red guy and make the decisions for the red guy now because your blue guy is too far away to make any impact whatsoever. And then there were times where I was too far away that we did it. So I can see if you were playing at the full player count that one person might end up getting left out. Yeah, that's happened. Term, if they go too far away and then they just can't catch up and never make an impact. Um, but I mean, I still really enjoyed it and I did want to toss in one more <laughs> hidden movement game that I thought of was, uh, uh, city of the great machine. It's a game that we already covered for its Kickstarter and Doolin and I played it at two and adored it. And it's now out in like retail and you can get it and play it. And we have a copy and I'm super excited to play it again because I loved it. Now that said, it's a much heavier, uh, hidden movement game. It's like, it's rated 3.74 on BGG. And Whoa. I would say that that's probably pretty fitting, 3.5 plus. It's a, it's quite a lot going on, but it's not one that I hear many people talk about, and it's really delightful. Yeah, I'm super excited to check that one out. 
Now, the same day we played Whitehall Mystery, we also played Rome in a Day, which is a new game. Uh, it's basically a reprint. It was called Lotta Rome, but they're changing the name for the new audience, and it's being published by Alley Cat Games. This is an I split you choose game that is said to be kind of like King Domino, kind of like Acropolis. And I think that's a pretty fair uh, assessment. Basically, you're drawing five tiles out of a personal stack and you're putting two buildings on them. And then it's your job to divide them into two groupings. And when you divide them into two groupings, your opponents will decide to take the larger or the smaller grouping. And you will decide to take the larger or the smaller grouping from one of them. And then you put them together and you build a city a la King Domino. And at the end of the game, you score points based off how many buildings you have that are adjacent to or on top of that same tile color. Like pretend the buildings are stars in King Domino. So you have three yellow buildings and six yellow tiles. You're scoring 18 points for your section of yellows. Uh, It's real quick. 15, 20 minutes, maybe, Kenny. And it's one of those that I was I was happy with. It's not like a it's not like a favorite game of all time or any stretch, but it is it is a nice, easy filler game that is still a lot of strategy right like you're not playing you're not playing a party game but you're playing a very middle strategy game that can be completed in only 15 minutes i thought it was great uh i really enjoyed the decision making it was a lot more brutal than i expected it's an easy decision to make but it's a hard thing to decide which way to go like all you're doing is saying i want big pile i want small pile but you're also trying to decide how to divide your piles up and Kenny's picking for me this round and Dylan's picking me this round and actually getting that working in in a way that works out for you is is very difficult, but I I really enjoyed it. Kenny, did you like this one? Yeah, I did. I think especially for how quick it played, I think I thought it was a really satisfying crunchy experience in like, like I said, 15, 20 minutes. I think like the, I pick you choose mechanic isn't really, isn't underutilized, I think. So it was really nice to see it um, done so well. So. Yeah, it's also $19, I think, for it, mm-hmm. on their pre-order party. So it's like, and the production's pretty decent, too. Yeah, like, it's not, yeah. it's not a really bad production or anything like that. It's like uh, the, it's surprising. I was really surprised by, like, the, the little building meeples. Like, it was like they're, like, have, like, um, holes in them to, like, help show, the, like, oh, this is the Coliseum, stuff like that. It's just, like, really nice details that you probably wouldn't see, like, in, you wouldn't expect for, like, a $20 game. 100% agreed, yeah. Yeah, so definitely check this one out. Uh, I think it's a, a very solid game to have in your collection to fill that 15, 20 minute time for under 20 bucks, like we said. So, all right, now that we're done talking about what we've been playing, Kyle, what have you been watching? Okay, so at the request of Kenny, our very own Kenny, I watched The Lighthouse, and you guys are going to have to help me out because I don't know what the <laughs> fuck it was about. <laughs> hey, you know what? Me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got some ideas. I read up on it a little bit. Okay, so let me set let me set it up here a little bit for what I know. Okay, so we're in we're in the late eighteen hundreds, New England. All right, and Willem Dafoe is a lighthouse keeper, and he needs a, a lighthouse keeper buddy, and so he hires. Don't we all? <laughs> we all. Yeah, I agreed. Uh, he hired Robert Pattinson, and like. Who would be on the top of everybody's list for a lighthouse buddy, I would assume. Uh, and then definitely mine. Robert Pattinson um is there and he's getting bossed around. He's like Willem Dafoe's little <laughs> and he doesn't like it very much, and he starts to go insane. And he doesn't uh, like it very much. 
it's a great synopsis before. I, I really like it. And he starts to go insane, and he kills the seagull, and the seagull, <laughs> the seagull didn't like it either. And Willem Dafoe was is always insane because he's, he's the Green Goblin, and eventually, <laughs> eventually they dance, they slow dance together, and then they get mad at each other for slow dancing. And things go off the rail. And spoiler alert, th- uh, they kill each other. <laughs> Robert Pattinson kills Willem Dafoe, or I can't remember. <laughs> it's, it's, I can't even remember. I can't remember. I, can't even remember. I just know the lighthouse is gone at the end. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. If it makes you feel better, I have bullet points written down for this movie. And the first one is just, WTF. <laughs> that's my first that's my first bullet point. Oh my gosh. This is a nutso movie. It is like it is like cosmic horror. It's black and white. It's shot in a one by one aspect ratio. Like it's beautiful though. And I genuinely mm-hmm. think that the acting is great. Yeah. Like I thought they crushed it and I was enthralled the entire way. It's uh before I get into what i think it means <laughs> i would like kitty to give your first impressions no i mean i think like the wtf uh reaction is well <laughs> yeah it's just it's just unhinged right and I, but i think like it's i really just like there comes a point like a halfway point in the movie that's where it just really hits right and just like things yeah. unravel and i think that's like on purpose too in terms of like the storyline like super spoilers if, if you're gonna watch lighthouse don't don't listen further um, but like, I think there's a point like where their last day, uh, they take a sip of the alcohol. Right. And I, I was reading something like people were saying, like, I don't think that was alcohol. I think that was like a kerosene, right. Which would trigger like this, uh, yeah, downward spiral mentally. Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, it just, it's, it gets nuts. Um, I, and, or, or it even brings in the question of like, was there a lighthouse there even the entire time was, did any of this actually happen? It's yeah. just, or did he just wash up, wash up to an island and just go through these delusions and then just die, right? Yeah, I mean, um, there are theories that it's like there's only one person and it's just an uh, internal struggle mm-hmm. that none of this is even real. Yeah, I don't know what to think myself, but I, I personally think, and I want to see this again because coming off of one play of this is just ridiculous. Like, but I, I just even, explained I it to you, shot for shot. Yeah, you yeah. did. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, and I, I want to know what you all think if you have any thoughts to this. I think that the movie can be boiled down, but it shouldn't be because it's ridiculous and there's so much happening. But if I were to try and boil it down to like a single sentence, I think that it is a struggle of knowledge and power slash authority. Okay, because so- like the movie starts with. Willem Dafoe's character being this authoritative figure who's talking down to Robert Pattinson and like, you don't know what you're talking about. I've been here forever. I know what's going on. He has the knowledge of how to be this lighthouse keeper. And in turn, he has authority over Robert Pattinson. And throughout the movie, they kind of kind of switch or or rather than switch, they rock the boat a lot. They're teeter-tottering throughout the movie. I mean, you literally have Robert Pattinson walking Willem Dafoe like a dog and then burying him alive 
and Hilarious. getting him to bark and things like that. Like <laughs> it's a power struggle. And I think that ultimately what is in the light, which is kind of talked about the whole movie is, is basically omniscience is how I take it is like, there's some godly knowledge in there that he doesn't want to give up. Willem Dafoe's character doesn't want anyone else to see because he wants to maintain authority. Like it's omniscience. If you look into the light, you learn and understand and things like that. I don't know. It's wacky. I had a different read. Um, and I had this thought during the <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I think the movie is about Robert Pattinson's character struggle with his sexuality. So I, mean, I can see that. Throughout the movie, he is like he finds that like girl figurine and he like the tries mermaid. to he like tries to jerk off to it but can't. Right? And like he gets frustrated. And he finds that mermaid and he's like really like distracted by it and like enthralled by it and then like it's a girl mermaid and the girl and it like screams and he like gets scared away and then the whole thing with um willem dafoe and the dancing and stuff i think i think the whole not the whole thing but i think part of it is like him just struggling with being that in that time period and wanting to be something that he's not uh and maybe that's maybe I'm reading too much into those those few scenes. Uh, I your your power struggle probably uh, hits more notes. Like there are more scenes pointing towards the power struggle thing. Um, but when I was watching the movie, I was like, there there's more to this. Like that that figurine. There's something to the mermaid, and then like the slow dancing and like the looking, and then like they were like sharing an intimate moment, and then he like got pissed off and like tried to repel it right so that that was my read um kenny what did you think i think you're i think those are both accurate like like i think those are both accurate ideas right so i think i think it probably it's probably both right it's just like what are all these elements that help drive this man to madness right i think there's also an aspect of just like guilt um that have probably driven him towards this and i think just all these different aspects are just driven him to the edge you know but i did yeah. see like the both, both of those takes uh in the movie as well like that 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 dog walking scene is just wild it's like i can't oh yeah, yeah. i can't yeah. happening yeah. Yeah. i mean the whole movie is just absurd like i knew this was a weird movie going in and when you put it on the list i was like oh yeah i even <laughs> said something in the discord like i'm glad it's not just me putting weird movies on the list <laughs> like, i was excited to <laughs> to check it out but it still surpassed my expectations of weirdness but i liked it a lot i think i rated it like a four star i think my, i think for me I, I gave it a two and a half um i i knocked it points for being uh i i really liked bits and pieces of it and i think i wrote this in the review on letterbox if you go and look but like there are bits and pieces that i just like absolutely loved like the scenes we're talking about are so much fun willem dafoe and robert pattinson are are great in it because they're just playing like complete wackadoos and uh i think my favorite part of the whole movie is that it just felt very hitchcockian to me it felt like an alfred hitchcock thriller um because maybe it was like the black and white but it's just like the weird shots the cuts um like being driven by matt dream being driven to madness um there's just like parts of that that just spoke hitchcock to me um but at the same time 
there were parts where I was like, I thought it was kind of dull. I thought they were trying to hit the note too much of him being like miserable in the rain and like parts dragged and it wasn't, it was almost too, it was almost too subtle for its own good. Um, at the same time. So subtle. It's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was too subtle. <laughs> That's never a word I would use for this. <laughs> well, I mean, like you don't, I think us getting three different reads out of it is enough to say that it's subtle because it's not in your face. The message is uh, subtle. Yeah. All right. I guess that's fair. I guess that's fair. The message is subtle. The characters yeah. are nuts. Yeah. The characters are not subtle. They're not like mumblecore or anything like that. Um, but there, there are parts that just like did not necessarily speak to me. And I was kind of like, okay, like let's move on. I want to see what happens at the end. And, uh, so it didn't just like come together for me completely. And I think it would be better on a rewatch, but I also have no interest in rewatching. That's fair. Yeah. I, I would yeah. land there too. I would, I wouldn't watch it again. Um, I, I do. I, I was initially drawn into the movie because of the cosmic horror elements and like, uh, there's like almost like this Lovecraftian, uh, feel to it. I think. Oh, for just sure. The, yeah. Of just like this cosmic dread and just hopelessness. Right. I thought it evoked that stuff really well. Um, but like I said, it's just, it just, it got really weird. And so I don't, it probably would be better on a rewatch, but yeah, I, I don't think I would devote the time to it either. I would definitely watch it again. But speaking of movies that also get really weird, uh, Kenny, talk to us about Barbarian. Um, so Barbarian is a horror movie from last year. Um, it's basically the concept really simple. A woman uh, books an Airbnb, finds that someone else is there who has also booked it through a different service and what happens next. Right. Um, and I guess if to, to really talk about the movie, we're going to go into like heavy, heavy spoiler territory. Yeah. We have because, spoiler warning big time. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can do a couple minutes of non-spoilers. <laughs> if you just want to know like what it is and do we recommend it? And then we'll get into spoilers real quick. Can we do that? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. Okay. I, I think like, I think it's a good horror movie, right? I think it builds tension really well. It does a lot of unexpected things, um, mm -hmm. and I think more than once in the movie, right? There's it does a couple of shifts that are just like totally surprising, yeah. um, and I think it does a good job of building tension. And it's not like overly gory or overly gross. There are certainly some gross points. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that in detail. Yes, um, we will. <laughs> but I mean, the <laughs> characters no. are really good. The act, the acting's really good. I, I thought it was I thought I was really quite impressed with it um, as a whole. Yeah, I, I really liked Barbarian. I do think that uh, the first 80% is better than the last 20%, but like it's still well worth the ride. So if you're interested in this, definitely check it out. Spoiler warning, people, for Barbarian. Uh, find the timestamps in the description below if you do not want to be spoiled and want to check this out for yourself. But uh, spoilers starting now. Yeah, so I think so. I think does, the movie does a really great job at like the first maybe quarter of the movie, where you it, it feels like it's going to be a suspense movie of like who is this guy? What's he going to do to her? Like right. this is a bad situation. Get out, right? Um, and I mean, like the, uh, one of the things I do like about the movie is that the the character Georgina Campbell plays is really smart, right? She's not a dummy. She 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 does these things against her better judgment, and so she stays at this Airbnb and. The, the guy that's there um, is doing some shady stuff, but eventually comes to realize that like, he's an okay guy. 
there's like even like a romance budding between the two of them um but things still go weird in the night because she when she's asleep she notices that her doors open she checks on um keith the guy that's staying with her and he's having like these night terrors and the next day she comes back and uh she goes she goes into the basement because the doors open and things go bad right it's not just Mm -hmm. there's like this underwater uh sorry underground city uh underwater city yeah (laughs) there's underground passageways that are leading to who knows what and yeah she finds a bed a bed in a room the bloody bed with like a video camera and yeah uh i think it only gets worse from there (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) it only gets worse I think it's one of it's one of the points in the movie like where it, one of the themes in the movie that I really liked was like the men are terrible. <laughs> uh, there comes this point like even then like this Keith character he's supposed to be like this really good, um, well, you know the character you're kind of rooting for in the movie just doesn't listen to um, Tess the main character just kind of pushes her away to like you know and not heed her advice. This kind of happens a lot in the movie too I noticed, um, but yeah it's that first half of the movie where it's just like this mystery of like, who is this guy quickly changes into of what is going down in the underground tunnels. It would have been so obvious for that guy to be the bad guy. Right. Um, it's something that horror movies and thrillers have predispositioned in us to think we uh, automatically assume that guy is up to no good. They wrote it very well to make him seem sketchy while he was also like being good natured. Um, which I is underrated part. Like we thought he was up to no good despite him doing everything right. And the movie still was able to buck that expectation and flip it on its flip it on its ear because like we as the audience thought he was up to no good. And we were like, and we could also think like, oh, that's so obvious though. Like it it can't be about that. And we were still surprised when it wasn't him. And I just think that's it was just a clever way for a thriller, um, a thriller horror movie to portray that. And for it to happen in the, like the first 30 minutes is wild. And now Max would like to talk about the next oh thing. My, that I, my favorite, yeah. my favorite part of the movie. So you literally get, you're like, is it this guy? Could it be? He's like, like you said, he's ignoring her pleads to not go deeper into the tunnel he's like nah it'll be fine and so then it gets in the back of your head you're like maybe it is him like maybe he's about to head smash into the wall killed instantly like you're just like oh and there's this crazy woman monster down there and then there's justin long (laughs) instantly and it just just transitions to justin long sitting yeah, like, in his what, car and what a daring like move to make like you hit this like really strong climax in the movie and it's just like you switch to like light popping music justin long is singing, singing along to a song on in his you know nice car on the pacific highway in california and it just move the t- movie shifts the tone shifts everything shifts like in an instant i loved it though like the next 30 minutes are like comedy almost like yeah one of the best scenes of the whole movie is when justin long is discovering all this and he's like oh my god think of all the extra square footage i can add (laughs) to my home like he has a measuring tape he's going into these tunnels like measuring everything else he's seeing like cages with blood in and he's like "Ah, it's fine it's extra square uh, footage like it's so funny to me he played an asshole so well like oh he did so good 
he's yeah he's just so unlikable and just does these things like he he it's like an actor trying to like be good right and it's just yeah. like and it's he's just, still it's so transparent yeah yeah i i loved i loved the first 60 minutes of this movie i you- l- liked the ending but like it didn't hit the high note that i wanted it to end right on. We can talk about how, you know, after the whole Justin Long comedy thing, it goes back to being horror, of course. It goes back in time, actually, and shows, like, how this house originated. It shows how before this was the slums, there was, like, a nice neighborhood there, and this guy was a a gentleman and blah, 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 and he started luring women into his basement, basically, and I guess just impregnating them over and over and over again and keeping them locked away against their will. And so by the end, you get these wild, crazy monster type people that have a been mutated far too much and have never been outside and B are like, he's got like this room where they watch this like, how to be a mommy video. And so she's all about being a mom to these people that she captures. And it's so like, it's just so out there. Like she's trying to feed them milk and you've got it. Like, what is it? Is it Justin? I don't remember the order in which they fall in there at this point, but someone's in there and he's like, Oh, just, just take the milk. Just do it. <laughs> it's like, what the heck is happening? Like Matt Damon, yeah, where are you at? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think the gro- there's you know there's some like blood and gross scenes in the movie, but the grossest scene in the movie is like when she's sticking that bottle in Justin's Long's face, and you get the perspective as a viewer, and you just see a hair dangling off that the <laughs> the tip of the nipple. It's just like oh my god, no way, absolutely not. So gross. <laughs> yeah, it does a great job of making you feel very unsettled. Like you're just ugh, you're you're freaked out, you're grossed out. It's just wild. Then you eventually find out that the dude is like still alive, barely in the basement. (laughs) And it's just like, that's when things start to turn a little for me. And it wasn't bad by any means, but like it just wasn't, it didn't live up to it. Uh, For how much the movie uh, like subverted expectations in the first like 60 minutes, to have that ending is really disappointing. Um, Especially considering, like, it was the movie is pretty grounded in reality for the first 80%, and then it becomes like a superhero, like, she's like a superhero. Um, it, it, it was just really weak there, uh, in my opinion. I didn't even mind that really. It, it was to me mostly the movie, the movie fell down when they met the guy who like knew what was up, right? And he was at like this area, and she's like, How, how do you live here? And this guy's like, I've been here 15 years and she's never boom and she busts through the door and it's like come on like that's just that's just dumb like and then he's instantly dead and then the rest is about like a struggle and the main girl ends up living and whatnot but it's just like the ending to me was like it was fine but they had this great movie and then it was just it was it was good at the end I'm, I I didn't have a problem with it I thought like it I mean it has to end I don't know. I think the movie has to have a point. I think that in terms of like themes and stuff like that, and I think it, the movie did have that, right? And I think it kind of got to the point of like what the movie's really about. 
with that end sequence with that end sequence so it didn't really bother me i I mean i do think it becomes like more of a like kyle said more of like a monster movie instead of like this you know i don't know how else to describe it but a a horror movie with like a lot of like atmosphere and tension um Mm -hmm. it kind of it shifts again i would say like into something different um but for me i didn't i didn't it didn't bother me now kyle i know you've not seen babylon yet but uh, Kenny, but when we when I was talking about Babylon the first time you were on, I said that there's a scene in Babylon that makes you go, "When yeah. did this become? When did this become uh, barbarian?" And do you know what I was referring to now at that point? When you start when when you go into Toby Maguire's, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's it's absurd. Yeah. I just had to talk about Babylon in some way, shape, or form. You know how it is. <laughs> do La La Land next? Any other thoughts on Babylon? You mean barbarian? It's, we were talking about yeah, barbarian, it, not Babylon. Barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts on barbarian? There's no more thoughts on Babylon. We've gone through them all. <laughs> you still got to watch it, Kyle. I know I do. One of these days. One you should watch days. it. It's good. It is good. It is good. Now, I'm not going to be able to spend a whole lot of time talking about my movie because I don't want to get heavy into spoilers because neither of these two folks have seen it and I want them to. But the movie I'm watching is, or the movie I've watched rather, is Perfect Blue. This is an anime movie from 1997. It is the first movie from director Satoshi Kon that I have seen. I'm not sure if it's his first movie. I don't know, but it's the first one that I've seen. Um, and he has done a lot of movies and many of them apparently really good. I would like to check out a couple others like Paprika. But this is what I would say is a psychological thriller. Uh, it is a movie that drags you along through the story of a pop star turned actress. And it kind of talks about a lot of what she has to go through and with crazed fans and with trying to get started in this new industry and with creepy, terrible directors and people telling you it's for you the best and you not wanting to do it, but doing it anyways, because you believe it's best for your career and doing things that are outside of the norm for you and stuff you don't actually want to do. But, Basically, it's a movie that the whole time you're like, what? What is real and what is not real? Like, you're trying to piece together what actually happens. I do think at the end, it is pretty clear. But I also think there's a totally valid argument over whether what you see is real. It's a very interesting thing to think about. And I'm very excited to talk about it once you all have seen it but i thought that this was just a awesome movie that kept you on your edge kept you thinking it's something that i'm still like tossing around in my head a week after having viewed it and if a movie can do that to me i think it's great i will say i recommend this to everyone but i do want to say that it is disturbing it can be triggering in particular if you are someone who is uh, wanting to avoid any topics about sexual assault. So I'll just say that if you if you want to watch this movie, but that is going to bother you, it's probably best you stay away. That said, if that's not going to bother you, this movie is incredible. I think it's a masterpiece. Easy five out of five for me. I freaking loved it. So that's perfect blue. How was the dub and sub on it? I did sub. I don't know how the dub was. I did sub. I always recommend sub if you can, but maybe the dub is good. 
I mean, it might be. But I did sub, and it was it was a great movie. 100% recommend. I, it might even be the second movie I toss on our list. You might have to watch it. <laughs> so you guys, we'll see. you guys are killing me here. Why? Why? What what happens first? All right, guys, we're gonna we're gonna take some bets here. What happens first? <laughs> we have a podcast episode that doesn't talk about Babylon, or talk about an anime, <laughs> or talk about a Marvel movie. What <laughs> what happens first? I'm sure one of those has already happened, but I couldn't tell you which one. <laughs> I feel like. I feel like it it might be like Babylon episode one because maybe I hadn't seen it yet at the time. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> maybe that's the only hope for us. We we did it before I watched it. Josh but, has only dude. been on like two episodes, and we're talking about anime every time. I I don't. Yeah. Get it. I like anime too, dude. I and know, and so does Kenny. Great. I'm the only one. I get, I understand. I'm in the minority, and the everybody in the Discord yelling at me too about being harsh on anime. I get it. I get it, people. I feel like you might like Perfect Blue. I hope you do. I really do. I might. Is it a movie where you feel like the anime gets in the way of like the the thrug, you know, the crux of the movie or what it's really about? Like, is it a movie that like like the anime ness would turn off, like Kyle? No, I don't think so. It is not a, you know, there are things that happen in it that are not able to be done in real life, but like not, not a lot. You know, this isn't Attack on Titan. This isn't My Hero <laughs> Academia or cowboy bebop where like it's all wild and crazy things happening there are some things that you couldn't do in a live action film but by no means is it like super weird and out there it's definitely fairly grounded for anime i've seen a lot of on a lot of lists like like movies are like uh like like almost like mind movies and i yeah it does seem like it's it's interesting because of that it's really i 100 percent agree with that um Again, I think that's one of the best parts is that like the movie ended and it shows you it shows you a cohesive movie. But at the same time, it begs you to ask the question of is that really what's happened? Like mm-hmm. it tells you what happened and right. then says, but did it actually? And you're just like, I don't know. Like, I love the way those movies make me feel when they just give me so much to think about and just rack my brain on. And yeah, this is an instant fave for me. Big fan. I want to watch it again. I just loved it a lot. Nice. All right. Now we're done talking about the movies we've been watching, the games we've been playing, but we need to talk about the games and movies that shaped the person that we are today. We've each picked three games and three movies that we believe have played some sort of part into who we are. Kyle, let's start talking about games. What is one of the first games that shaped you, the Kyle King we know and love, today? Okay, so this is a this is a pretty basic answer. All right. Oh my god. And I'm I'm say, I'm not saying this in like uh in in a basic way, but the game is Monopoly. Um, oh, of course. And it's not that I just played it with my family every now and again and everybody hated it. No, like you guys don't understand. I played and I loved Monopoly like all the way through high school. Um, I, I played it whenever I went to my cousin's house. I play, I like had different sets. I, uh, in the next game, actually, I'm going to, do you care if I put my second game in with this one? So Mm -hmm. my second game is risk. So both of these games, like everybody's familiar with, 
I'm sure everybody has experience with them growing up. I played Monopoly and Risk like every weekend in high school. And that's not a joke. We would seriously play like my friend who I still play board games with would come over every Friday or Saturday. We would play Monopoly and then we would play Risk. And the reason why I think those you know, shaped me is like for a second. I uh, thought that was pretty weird. But then I remembered that like your high school experience was like, what, 1982 or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, 82, 82, 82, class of 82, baby. <laughs> Uh, no, I, it is, it is kind of weird, but like, I wasn't, uh, a big partier or drinker in high school either. So I like, I really didn't go to parties despite, like I had friends, people. Okay. I had friends, <laughs> but I, I had really no interest in drink, drinking or partying. So like, I would party just, like, next door. <laughs> Kyle's like, guys, come play Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go down to the boardwalk. What's up? <laughs> You better not hole up in Australia, boy. <laughs> oh my gosh, man! I want to. I want to spend a party at the King's house. That just sounds like a great day. All right. Well, but <laughs> I don't know where I went. Back. Okay, but yeah, we we played a lot, and we uh, this was before I was like into the hobby. Like these were the only games I knew, and this to. Max, it wasn't 82. This was like 06, 07. <laughs> All right, 05, 05 to 07. So this was before I was in the hobby at like in like 2015. And the reason I say it shaped me is because not only did it like, did I love games growing up and like that showed there, um, but they kind of mapped the games I love today. My two favorite genres are economic games and like area control troops on a map games. And I think those directly correlate with me playing Monopoly and Risk. Like, nothing makes me happier than, like, having a map and fighting. And, like, Risk has its flaws, but there's just something so pure about having this on the map and saying, like, I'm taking my guys, I'm fighting against yours. Um, And I, I still remember the first time I played Risk. My dad bought it for me, uh, for us, me and him, like, when I was, like, uh, 10, 11 years old. And uh, we set up a game for me, him, and my mom. And obviously it was like a long game. So we just like set it up on a card table in our, in our family room. And we would play for like an hour every night. And, uh, it felt like the first time, like I was included in playing like an actual like game that wasn't like, sorry or something. I felt like I was playing a real game with real rules and I was able to play with the adults. And it, it was a really seminal moment in my life playing that first game of risk with my parents. Um, a memory I will never forget. And I, I still hold risk near and dear to my heart because of that. No, that's great. Risk, yeah, is, cool. risk is cool. Like, I don't hate it. Have you played Risk Legacy? Because I've actually heard that it's like pretty good. I could be wrong, but people say it's decent. We've started it. My friend bought it. The one that I played Risk with, like he bought it because like he saw Risk Legacy after we played Pandemic Legacy. He was like, oh, I wonder how how close it is. And there it's definitely better they do some things better and i think it's a good design um there are things that are like pretty different about it like the games aren't going to take four or five hours there are different win conditions than just taking over the entire world which is nice but sure ultimately he bought that like right when i was like really getting into the hobby and collecting so like i was buying all these games that were just like uh i mean just to say it like are better than risk legacy so it just sure. it, it fell out, it fell out of rotation because we were just playing bigger and better stuff. So I'll, I'll keep going. Um, so the 
I, I have two more. So there's there's one more pre me being a hobby, and that is uh Pokemon the Living Card Game. Um, so uh, growing up, as most kids my age, uh, we were obsessed with Pokemon because Pokemon Red and Pokemon Blue came out when we were nine and ten years old. Uh, so we were right in the wheelhouse for it. And Pokemon Red is a fantastic game. It, it's better than every other Pokemon to ever exist. And uh, I played the crap out of it. I became obsessed with Pokemon in general. I became obsessed with the Pokemon cartoon. And then a similar moment to like similar memory for like when my dad brought home Risk. I remember like one night, one night my mom went to Target uh, by herself and she came home and she gave me a booster pack of Pokemon trading cards. And she bought it for me, not knowing what they were, uh, just knowing that I liked Pokemon. So she gave me the booster pack. And like, I still remember the smell of first opening that pack of cards. Everybody knows that <laughs> that smell well. And I remember the first rare I got, it was a shiny Zapdos. And Ooh. I was like immediately obsessed with this. And I was like, every time I had uh, spare money, I was buying Pokemon cards. But I wasn't just collecting. Like me and my friends at church, we would actually stay after after the sermon and play for like like put decks together, and we would play for an hour, hour and a half. And so I think that was like I never gotten any other LCGs. I never played Magic despite uh, playing the Pokemon card game. Um, but I played the crap out of the Pokemon card game when I was uh, in middle school, and um, it's just I I think it shaped me just because like it not only showed me what a card game was, which I really like. And then like I'm Marvel champions is probably what it's like led into is like just me loving the, the buying of a pack and checking out all these cool characters. Um, but it also had, I don't know if you guys remember this. There was a, a game boy game called the Pokemon card game on game boy. So like you could literally play the Pokemon card game digitally so it's like a BGA version of the Pokemon card game. And I would play that. <laughs> and so I was just, I just loved that game because of the theme. Um, it did something that I didn't know existed before. Cause I didn't know about magic. Um, so that that's one that like really had a, I think it had a monumental effect on my life. And then I, I do want to bring up one more. And so uh, I, I got to bring up the game that brought me into the hobby officially and that's Lords of Waterdeep, which I won't go into too much here because I talked about Lords of Waterdeep last episode or two episodes ago. And uh, Lords of Waterdeep was just introduced to me in uh, probably around 2013-ish. And uh, that's when it was like a, it was like a wow moment of like, this is really cool. I don't know about the theme, but like I'm get, being taught rules that I didn't even know were uh, possible and uh, we're making crazy decisions and there are no dice. And so I was like, what is this game? And I, I loved it immediately. And then about two years later, like I would play that and I would play Catan and I played Pandemic like on and off over those two years. But like that was really what kickstarted me into like where I am now. Yeah, I was big into collecting Pokemon card games, <laughs> but I, I never actually played. I I genuinely don't think I have ever played the Pokemon card game. I don't even know how, but I bought a lot of packs. Like when I worked at GameStop and got like the employee discount, my guy, when the store was slow, I was like, well, I'm just going to buy some packs. <laughs> I was just like spending my own money that I was making at that time on packs. And I was just like, 
I didn't play the game at all. I just liked opening packs, man. I really think you're in the majority there. I think a lot of people collected Pokemon cards over playing the game. Um, yeah. I think that's definitely the case now over playing the game. Um, but I have recently like Pokemon cards are like, I think they've like kind of gotten more popular over the past like year or two. They have, um, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I've actually started buying packs for my daughter. Uh, nice. And she's been collecting it. Cause like, she's not it's, like super into Pokemon, but she's played some games on the switch and she likes the character. Sure. But she really enjoys like getting the cards too and seeing all the cute like ones that look like dogs and stuff. And she loves the shiny cards of it. So it is fun to like get those packs for your kids now after like experiencing that as kids. So I've never played Pokemon the card game. Like uh, the whole Pokemon train it kind of sailed by me and it, I didn't really get into it. Though yeah, I do appreciate the Pokemon. I was going to say yeah, you've been too old for Pokemon there, Kenny. <laughs> yeah, I'll have you know, I, I mained Pikachu and Super Smash Bros. So I, I, I have familiar Which familiarity Super with Smash Bros? The first one. Shut up. Um, 64. <laughs> 64, <laughs> yeah, dude. let's go. Of course. The best version. No, Melee's the of best. Course. Yeah, Melee's yeah, well, the best. Anyway, um, so Pokemon as a game, like, how does it, like, compare or feel to, like, other card games that you played now that you, like, you know, have exp- experience in the hobby? I think it definitely compares. I mean, it compares the most to Magic. I have now since played Magic. Um, I would... Uh, it, yeah, it just compares to those and like, uh, what's that newest one where, uh, oh crap, where it's also by Richard Garfield and all the decks Mind have like bug? their own weird na- No, not Mindbug. It has the weird names. Oh, key, key Forge. Key, key Forge. Oh, Key Forge, yeah. I think yeah. it kind of feels like Key Forge. Um, but yeah, you're just putting out your Pokemon. You you have to put energy costs on them, which are like your mana. Um, you have to, uh, every time you defeat one of your opponent's Pokemon, you get a prize. And it was the first to six prizes wins. Um, I, that's the way it was back in the day. I don't know if they've changed any of the rules or anything like that. But yeah, you have you have your deck of Pokemons. They need energy. You you have items uh, that can like heal you and stuff. So it, it really is, uh, it really feels like a trading card game. If you've ever played any of those Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh! or anything like that, I think it feels most like mm-hmm. that. And then second would probably be Marvel Champions, just because that kind of has a card game feel, um, except it's cooperative, so it's it's not quite yeah. the same. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I've thought about like getting like my daughter. She's only five, so I don't think like she's probably much too young still. But uh, getting her into like the Pokemon uh, world and like getting uh, cards for her, but like that's probably like at least probably a couple years away before she really can get into it. But I, I feel you there. All right. Well. I'm very thankful for those games, Kyle, that they shaped who you are today. <laughs> no, do you mean Without that? Without those games, you would. No, I do. I do mean that. I do mean that. I mean, it. you know, it makes sense. Like, like maybe if I could go back in time, I might replace Monopoly with something else, you know, just right. to, to improve Kyle. But like, I'm happy. <laughs> I with could be Kyle. better. <laughs> All right, Kitty. Tell us about the games that shaped you. Well, let me tell you a story about my oh, life. Oh, I'm ready. Yeah. Um, I was born so... in 1819. It was a cold... <laughs> I was at a lighthouse with Willem Dafoe. <laughs> All we had was kerosene in our cups. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, so the first game on my list is Hero Clicks. Um, are, are you at all familiar with uh, hero clicks no yeah, i played hero clicks as a kid yeah it didn't shake so hero clicks is a yeah well i i played it when i was not a kid but hero clicks is a collectible skirmish game um you, and it's most popular based off of like uh 
um, superhero IPs like Marvel, DC. Um, and it is like, it's pretty, like pretty standard. Like you're just trying to defeat the other team, bring their health down to zero. Um, but what made the game really different and thematic is that it is a game where basically there are five clicks on a figure, right? Or however many there are. And each click has like different symbols and like stats on it. So like um, a good example would be someone, something like Iron Man on click one or two could be really weak, but the, by the time you get to three, four, five, he can become really strong um, just because the, that's the way the, the game kind of moves. Um, and so thematically that really worked as like a really good, like, uh, it works really well with like a superhero IP. Cause like you can do like these really deep cuts of like these superheroes. And that is the thing that really drew me back in, drew me into the, the game back when I got into it. Cause before then I was really just mostly into video games. Um, but around that time, like my friend started playing and said, Hey, you should try this out. And it became a thing like where you know, I started playing with him. Then we started playing at the local shops, meeting people. I started going to like, you know, even tournaments like in the area to like, you know, win prizes or just, you know, play like in the competitive scene. And so I, I really attribute Hero Clicks as the game that got me into tabletop games in general. Um, and just appreciating like being the joy of like playing at a table with other people, um, getting to know people face to face. And so that that's that's the game that like really judged drew me into that whole thing. Um, and I, I generally think like Hero Clicks is, is a good game. Like it's, especially like I think Kyle, you would probably really like it if you knew the rules um, and have like a good set of characters. Like it's, there's, it does like, it does like the Marvel stuff really well. I will say. I, I used to, I, I would collect Hero Clicks uh, because I liked the characters. Um, and I remember I had, I had a lot um, just from collecting and I remember trying to play it with one of my buddies, like when we went on vacation, uh, summer vacation one time together, and we were young and stupid and we could not figure out the rules and we could not figure out like the yeah. movement. And I remember just getting kind of frustrated because I like really wanted to like play the game and like love the game because I had all these figures. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I would, I would be curious to play it now. Um, yeah. I wonder, yeah. have <laughs> they, have they updated, uh, like the rule set over the past like 20 years? Oh yeah, it's like I mean the game is like constantly getting like revisions and like updates and errata, um, like because it is like a lifestyle game. Like this is like a game you could play and play the three or four sets each year that come out. Um, so yeah, it is constantly getting updated, um, and like it is like a pretty deep game. There's a lot of rules to it, and just to keep up with that stuff is tough, um, especially if you get like into the more complicated sets and more complicated characters and just all their different interactions. Um, it is, it can get pretty wild. So I, it's not surprising that like, as like, if you're just like a, a kid trying to learn it, like it'd be very hard to grok. Like, uh, I had to have people teach me multiple times and then even then you're still getting rules wrong, but, Dude, um, they have hero clicks based off the TV show Orville. Like, yeah, there's <laughs> an funny, Orville man. hero clicks. What the heck? <laughs> WWE horror clicks, Star Trek. Yeah, there is. There's so much to this. It's it's clicks is for everybody. It's like tricks are for kids, but clicks are for everybody. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I haven't played in years, but it's it's a game like I would go back and play. Um, Fair. If uh, you know, yeah. Do you have all your stuff still? Um, no, no. I, I I offloaded that a while ago. Um, I was I was deep into it, and I had way too way too much. But like, I would like do something like pick up a set of like easier characters to play 
and just maybe have that to to like kind of show people and kind of gauge interest and stuff you know sure um so the next game on my list is a kind of like dual combo is a pandemic and elder sign and so these are the two games i attribute as like the games that got me into the hobby proper um and so this is a game that like my friend lisa introduced to me i worked one day um and she showed me elder sign first with a couple other friends and then showed me the pandemic the next day and it just like blew my mind right like uh like to play a game like that is basically yahtzee but it's cooperative and like highly thematic was like what is this and to play a game like pandemic which is just like a really at the time really really tough like cooperative game where you have to like discuss movements and like um try to make the best decision possible as a group also just totally blew my mind and beyond that like i think it's these two games are kind of like a launching point for me to discover uh youtube um board game youtube because these are two games that are also uh featured on will Wheaton's tabletop um which is like super influential into me getting to the hobby because that led to stuff like the dice tower to shut up and sit down to just like everything right um mm-hmm. that's where the floodgates open for me to just like go oh my gosh there's there's so much um yeah so those are two games that like i attribute as like the games that got me into the hobby and just really uh, made me love tabletop gaming um yeah honestly i'm 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 happy that you're here because if pandemic was what tried to get me into the hobby i'm not sure i'd be here <laughs> you're full of <laughs> because <laughs> if you played if that was like the first game you played in the hobby you would be your mind would be freaking blown that somebody could come up with so that. good listen it's so good it's fun it's also, to, to talk trash about pandemic when kyle's around it's also the stone for all cooperative games after that. It is like literally the the corner piece of all cooperative games. Everybody <laughs> I wishes won't disagree to be with it. that. No, that's why it's the it's the foundation, but it's been built upon and improved ever since. I'm just yeah, a pandemic's so good. Yeah, pandemic's so good. I don't get it. Um, I, I have. I'll say one more game on my list, and that is Werewolf. Um, so Werewolf is uh. So I don't know if you know this about me guys, but I'm kind of a quiet guy. Don't usually <laughs> talk in big groups and stuff Wait. like that. This is going to be a dumb interjection. I had like yeah. two scripts written out for the intro and it was going to be like, I, my guess for the movies that shaped you for Kyle, it was probably super eight because it was filmed in Ohio. And for Kenny, it was probably 1959's the quiet man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> here we are here we are um so i so werewolf is one so once i one time had my wife tell me she thinks like she says something along the lines of like you're kind of at your best when you're playing a board game i was like huh that is is interesting i don't know if that's a good thing or not yeah i don't know but i think she i think she basically that like i think i become more like animated and i become more sociable when playing a board game right like um and the games like that can bring it out of me but, but I think like, so I think like games kind of just make me more sociable and just make me connect with people a bit easier, which I think is like a common thing for people who are in board games. Cause like if you're introverted, board games give you like a, a structure to interact with people and have fun. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good way for, you know, introverts to like make connections while still having a structure to kind of move forward. That isn't just like small talk. Um, and I, I put Boy Ruff on this list because it is a game that like, 
kind of forced me because I really wanted to play it. But to play it, like you have to have to someone who's going to lead it, right? And World Wolves again, they like forced me to like get in front of people and say, "Hey, we're going to play this game. I'm going to be your um, what, what's it called? It's not your narrator of the story, and kind of leading you through this um through this game. And for, for me, like it became a game that we played a ton, like at work, played it at even with like my my wife's family. Um, and it just became like a thing, like a a game that really pushed me out of my comfort zone. Um, and I, I'm, I think I'm the better for it. And I think it's even like my professional career, I think like it's helped me, um, be more comfortable with like public speaking, things like that. Like things you would never think, um, a board game can, can help you with or help shape you to do better. But Werewolf, I think is a game that helped me do that. Not necessarily a similar experience, but I would say like Mafia is, uh, up there for me as well. Like if I had to, if I had to list five games, I think Mafia would be on there. Cause I remember playing that in high school, like with our, uh, our like youth group, the young life youth group, um, all the time. And, uh, you're, you're right. It does like, it just provides, uh, a reason for interaction. It, it allows for everybody to, to speak up a little bit and come out of their shell and it, it creates memories. Uh, whereas like normally like you're, you're sitting in a room with 20 strangers, uh, or 20 people you just don't know that well. And you can like instantly become friends with them because you'd be like, Oh, do you remember that game? Like, I can't believe you were the killer. And, uh all so, so i think those are i think those are great games uh icebreaker games get it really does get people um connected to people they may not have otherwise yeah yeah i think it's funny like how much a game about just yelling at people and telling them they're a liar can like you know help create bonds of friendship yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> i'm sure there are people that have ended friendships and pushed mm. people out of the hobby because of these games too it is like a yeah it is like a a fine line that you have to tread and i do think that some people probably don't tread it very well like i can see where these games could be toxic and remove people from a space that they once felt comfortable in and no longer do and i think it's very important that we love these games but like like i make it and i think blood on the clock tower is excellent for including this like in their rule book and stuff but like it's a it's for fun right like like it's, we're all here to have fun let's not let's not make enemies over this i will say like you're you're right i i do remember like megan would not play a game like this anymore because of like a time when we were playing when we were like had a christmas party with like our friends like everybody we knew and we were playing this game and we played mafia and we just sell out the cars and like she didn't know like what she was doing and the rules weren't really explained to her because she didn't grow up playing it like we did in in high school and like one of my friends like made her feel dumb about like one of the decisions she made and like it pissed me off and it pissed her off and now like she has no interest in ever playing that again and it's like is is that really like we're gonna have like my wife or like one of your friends like not engaging with us because you had to make somebody feel stupid um yeah and I, i do probably think that is pretty common you're you're not wrong yeah, and I'm sure that can happen over any board game. It just kind of it, it has it's an open forum for it in in these types of games. But interestingly enough, uh, Danielle hates Resistance and One Night Ultimate Werewolf, but loves Blood on the Clock Tower. I, I think it's because it's like more of a puzzle. Everyone's confused, mm-hmm. so it's less I'm yelling yeah, at you. Because like to be honest, like I like the Resistance and I like One Night Ultimate Werewolf, but it becomes so much of a yelling match in those games. And I do find that Blood on the yeah. Clock Tower is like. Uh, you know what you've got a point like i might be drunk like i might you, you know you're totally right like i might be i might not have a clue what i'm saying but it's just a puzzle to work out i think that's great kind of got a bit off subject there but man social deduction games are so much fun 
All right, now the the games that shaped me, it's it's kind of hard, guys. I have a really terrible memory. I have a terrible memory. It's hard for me to pick particular games that I feel like shaped the way I am today, but I remember one of the games that we played over and over again with my family was Hand and Foot. It's just a card game, and it's one of those card games that I talk to a lot of friends who also play Hand and Foot in their family. It's also on Board Game Arena, though. I've never tried it on Board Game Arena, but it's a game that everyone seems to have different rules on like it follows a similar structure of trying to close out sets and get into your foot and close out sets and in the game and score the least points possible and stuff like that uh well most points possible um and uh but everyone always has unique variations of it which i find so fun to talk about with people but this is a game that it was just the game that i played with my family the most and it it got me to love games and at the same time it got me to appreciate different games because I love hand and foot. It's a lot of fun. I love playing with my family. I won't turn down a game. But like as someone who enjoys the hobby games now, like man, hand and foot is like it's one of those games that kind of plays itself almost. And so yeah. like you don't make that many decisions. It's just what you're given. And so like you can just play a terrible game because you're just given terrible cards. And it's like I have fun, but at the end I'm like, man, we could have played something else. And like we would have had more fun, but it's just so familiar to everyone in my family now that that is like a staple. Now, after that, I think the first game to really get me into the hobby, I've pro I probably played Werewolf by now. I probably played some other things, Munchkin, but like Catan was what really pulled me in. I played Catan with Danielle and David and Erica, a couple good friends of ours, like all the time. All the time we played Catan. And it never got boring. It never got old. We played two games in a row. I don't even quite know how. Like looking back at it, I'm like, man, if only we had other games at the time <laughs> because we played so much Catan. We we only ever played the base game. We only ever introduced our own variant called the drunk robber, which is any time a seven was rolled, you had to take a shot. But that didn't last <laughs> that. very long. It didn't. It didn't last long before we were like, "All right, we can't take any more shots. Like this is a bad <laughs> idea." But it is just one of those games that it, it it made me love competition for longest road and like cutthroatiness of trying to take these things and the different avenues you can go. Like you can go strictly for development cards and try and win that way through victory points and crap like that. Largest army. And it also made me enjoy the randomness of the game. I mean, it's not a perfect game. There's so much randomness involved with the dice that are being rolled. But, like, you can manipulate the odds. I don't even like Catan that much anymore. But, like, at the time, it was certainly a, a fit for my gaming career, time and place, the people that I had around me. It was just the one thing that we fell deeply in love with and really didn't move on from anything for a long time but that that i i consider that to be the contributing the single greatest contributing factor to me getting into hobby board games was was Catan. and then i think the game that actually showed me my personal tastes more than anything else was probably cosmic encounter uh this is a game that i played fairly early on into the hobby it became my number one game of all time it would probably still be top 10 if I was able to play it more regularly. But this is a game that showed me what games can be when you're like, when you're just allowed to do whatever, right? Like the game introduced these 
wacky aliens. It introduced these negotiation tactics and the screwing friends over. And it, it to me, was probably why my tastes skew so interaction heavy these days. Like, I think Cosmic Encounter is the single greatest contributing factor to me liking interaction in my board games. I want to be able to negotiate or I want to be able to hurt you or go after you. And I want to be able to table talk. I love the table talk. I love asymmetric factions and aliens and things like that. It really introduced me to a lot of things that I just didn't realize board games could be. After playing so much Catan and so much Munchkin for so long, and then Cosmic Encounter came around, and it was like, you can kind of cheat. Like, we're going to let you with this asymmetric ability. <laughs> and, like, your alien's really strong, and his isn't. So it's kind of up to the table to stop you from winning the game. And, like, some people may hate that, but for me, I love that. Like, it doesn't bother me at all. In a more, like, serious game, it, it of course would. But this is not that. It's a game about having fun and interacting with those around you. And it's easily just it, it gave me the love of maybe fun greater than fair. Like fun is the most important thing to me when playing a board game. And it, it probably is the single thing that introduced me to that over anything else. Yeah, and I think Cosmic Encounter is just still such a unique experience. Like it's there's no game quite like it. Um and it just brings in so many different elements of like I think what makes board games great, especially like that interactive element. So Yeah. Um, I love that it was designed like forty five years ago too. And it yeah. still still hits. Nothing quite like it. I think that's so cool. And now they have like I mean, I have multiple expansions and now they have like a campaign which I would love to try. I don't know how good it is, but like that just seems that just seems awesome. But it's just, I feel like for me, you go from Hand and Foot, which is a game that just taught me to love games, right? Like, that's what it taught me. It was a game to Being love Being with games. family, yeah. Right. Yeah. Being with family and kind of, and I think it taught me tolerance, right? Like, the game doesn't have to be that great as long as you're having fun with the people around the table. Like, Hand and Foot is not that great of a game, but I'm having fun with the people at the table. And then you go into Catan, which just taught me what it, like it could be a serious thing right like i was playing munchkin and hand and foot and all these party games to something that's a little more serious and a little more strategy heavy and and it just taught me like it showed me the broader horizons of what was available and then you have cosmic encounter which really honed in my feelings as to like why i like board games like there are plenty of games i like that don't have interaction but my favorites are always going to be the blood on the clock towers, the Dune Imperiums, the root, the cosmic encounter, things where I can interact with those people around me because that's why I'm here, right? Like I don't play solo board games that often though. I'd like to in some capacity, but like the reason I play games is to have fun with my friends. And I think that that was easily the one that just showed me what it was all about. All right. I got, I got to get, I got to give some love to Catan too. Um, that you're you're right. Like I probably don't play Catan uh, that much anymore. Uh, it's actually been like literal years since I've played. Um, but it's here. also a game that'll that'll never leave my collection. It just won't. Um, it it can take up shelf space as long as I'm on this earth. Uh, it's just very it, it's very special for this hobby, uh, which is my my number one thing is this hobby. Uh, so for what Catan meant to me and what it's meant for every gamer, like I, I feel like I just need to own it. And I do think now is a good time to just shout out Klaus Teuber, who recently passed away April 1st of this year. And he is the the designer of Catan. He left a legacy on this hobby. Uh, like it or not, 
and uh, rest in peace, Klaus. Katan had a large impact on at least Kyle and I both here, so we're very thankful for what Katan did for us. But even if I don't play it, I even culled my copy. It was one of those culls that I really considered it, though. Much like you wanting to hold or keeping it forever, I wanted to. There was a point where I was like, I don't think I have so many memories in this box, right? So many memories came from Catan. But at the same time, I was like, look, I can just sell it for like five bucks and someone else can make memories with this yeah, game. And those so. memories don't leave you, right? They, they don't. You, no, you don't have those memories no. no matter what. Yeah, right. I, I've lost my desire to be a collector recently. Or not recently. <laughs> That's not, it's not that recent. But I've lost my desire to be a collector. And just, uh, I enjoy passing on games. I enjoy just saying, hey, I've had my fun with this. Now it's your turn. And I hope it inspires another generation of people to play board games. But those are the games that shaped us. Now on to the movies that shaped us. Kyle, let's start off with you. Okay. I'm going to start with, uh, it's got to be my number one. I'm starting number one. I'm starting hot. The number one movie that shaped me is Billy Madison, of course. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Billy Madison (laughs) is... A very stupid Adam Sandler movie about uh, a, a grown adult baby who uh, <laughs> is a, nep- a, a nepo baby who doesn't have to do anything because his uh, father is a rich hotel millionaire um, and he wants to inherit the company. So he has to go back to school to graduate successfully and he has to do all 12 grades and uh, each two weeks at a time. Uh, I'm sure everybody's seen Billy Madison and if you haven't, what the hell? Uh, I saw it for the, the reason, first time last year. What, uh, before I get into like why it shaped me, what did you think about Billy Madison seeing it for the first time thirty years later? I liked it, but like it certainly wasn't an out of body experience that defined comedy for me. Like I know it did for a lot of people, and yeah, and I had a good time. I enjoyed it, but I'm sure it was a little bit of you know a product of the times. To where I'm watching it almost 20 years after it came out. So I think it came out in 1995. Oh, wait. Almost 30 years after it came out. Yeah. And so it's just like, I, I'm sure I missed it. But there are still quotes from the single viewing. You know, the monologue from the teacher. The, if peeing your pants is cool, consider me Miles <laughs> Davis. Or what I, and I can't do his <laughs> accent. I have no idea how he did that. But it is it is a great little comedy flick. But it is a dumb comedy flick if you're cool with that it's great if you're not you're gonna hate it like <laughs> i feel yeah. like the 90s are such a there's like a period in the 90s like mid 90s where like there were just so many of these good stupid comedy classics yeah, dumb and, and dumber like really dumb and dumber like dumb and dumber is my favorite i've never seen that movie one that i should put on the list um but yeah this billy Ma- i also love billy madison it's like a comfort it's like a comfort food type thing comfort movie for me so it, it shaped me first off, like this is a movie I, I literally watched. Like I'm not being hyperbolic in this, in the slightest. I watched every single night. Um, I would have it on, I had it on VHS. I had a, a TV with a VCR in my bedroom. I would put it on. I would, I would press play as I fell asleep every single night and it would be on for months. It would be something like before I owned it, uh, whenever I went to the the video store with my mom and I was allowed to pick out a movie for the weekend, it was always Billy Madison. Um, <laughs> and I I don't know what why it hit. I think it was just so funny because like 
we were we were elementary school kids at the time when it came out so it was like how funny would it be if the grown up was in here doing this stuff but the reason i think it shaped me is like what max was saying is like he didn't feel like it revolutionized or like it didn't strike a what comedy could be for him and that's because he grew up with different comedies and mm-hmm. to me i think it it shaped my sense of humor because it is so freaking weird and i'm gonna call it i'm gonna bullet yeah. point some of the weird stuff uh the penguin that he just sees randomly oh my god um <laughs> the the kindergarten teacher putting glue on her face uh the dude that he went to high school with uh like getting a call and then just randomly putting on lipstick and laying back in his couch it's just like all these little things that are just so freaking random and like somebody just decided like let's write this into the movie and everybody else in the writer's room was like yeah that's hilarious let's do that and uh i I think it's became kind of like cliche now to say like oh i like uh, I like, I'm so random. I'm so cr- weird. And I think it, it's because of stuff like Billy Madison, which truly was random and weird. And <laughs> just like, it also had like legit, like, like funny stuff. That's like funny to anybody. Like you said, the the monologue is hilarious to everybody. And uh, he called the poop is so yeah. funny to me. And Stay all out of my stuff, business, like, devil woman. <laughs> yeah. I, which I quote constantly. <laughs> I say that to Megan literally every single day. <laughs> So there's a it's just, it's very quotable and I I really do think it shapes so much of what I find funny even today. Uh, so that, Billy Madison is number one on the list for me. Sorry to interrupt you, but how do you feel about Happy Gilmore? So I think Happy Gilmore. I think I like Happy Gilmore more. Uh, Happy. I think Happy Gilmore is a better movie. Uh, in general, just like taking uh how you feel about it out, like which one you prefer. I think Billy or Happy Gilmore is the better movie. Uh, I think it is funnier, and I think if I had to choose one to watch right now, it would be Happy Gilmore. But Billy mm-hmm. Madison is the one that stuck with me more as a kid and growing up. I did, for me, they're so closely associated; like, it's hard for me to separate them. So I, I love them both. So um, yeah, don't get me wrong; we're I, talking I, about a ten and a nine point eight, right? <laughs> I feel like the only one I've seen from that time period is like Mr. Deeds. I'm not even sure that's, if that's it's not even the same period. class. Get out of here, Max. That's the only not one the I've seen, class. man. I mean, until Billy Madison. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same class but i do think mr deeds is a little underrated i i like mr deeds actually um so the next one on my list is also a uh, a comedy from uh, the mid 90s a uh, little theme there uh and that is a like a coming of age story called the sandlot uh and the reason this kind of shaped me is because like i'm actually like a huge i'm a big fan of sports uh i, I like pretty much all the four major sports and i like soccer which I've mentioned for, before on here. Um, and the Sandlot was a time where it came out at a time where like, I wasn't necessarily into sports that much. My dad was, uh, I played baseball growing up, but I wasn't necessarily into it. I really felt like the main character, Scotty, right? Like where he was more of a geek and didn't have a ton of friends. And it kind of showed me how special sports can be. Um, I think there is some uh, toxicity to being a sports fan. Uh, I think people can take it way too seriously. I take it way too seriously sometimes. But the Sandlot shows like how great sports is. Um, it kind of relates to why board games are great. It, it brings people together. It, Sandlot takes nine kids who had nothing in common uh, except for their love of baseball. 
and they would play every single day. They would play if it was hot. They would uh, they would have one night of the year where they could play at night because of the fireworks going off. Um, if they couldn't play baseball, uh, they didn't know what else to do with their time. Um, so th- that kind of shaped me in terms of like just kind of the importance of friendship, the importance of sport, uh, the importance of team. And it's just like a really, uh, it was a really funny movie. It's really quotable. Uh, and I just think for a movie that was made in the mid nineties and it's like a kid's sports movie, uh, which usually has flaws. Like the mighty ducks is a good movie. It has flaws. Um, the big green, another one, little giants, all those movies are kids movies that have flaws. I don't think the Sandlot has flaws. I think the Sandlot is a perfect sports movie. I think it is a perfect family movie. I think it is a perfect comedy. Um, so that's, that's my take on Sandlot and, uh, why it's so special, special to me and like why, how it made me. Man, I've seen the Sandlot, but it's been years, like a decade and a half. I, I don't remember much about it. I really, I remember the dog, right? Like that's the only thing. Oh yeah. The beast. Yeah. That's like the only thing that sticks in my head. And like the, the guy like faking the girl out being, being the like not being able to breathe needing cpr needing resuscitation i remember that but like those are the only two like key moments in the movie that i can even recall like i i gotta watch this again yeah, yeah. Do. i love the sandlot it is i i'm not into sports like at all but um i think like the sandlot hits like hits the feels of being like nostalgic about like your youth and nostalgic yeah. about summer um yes, and just you don't even you can even be a kid and still feel that that feeling right as i remember having that distinct feeling when i was a kid watching it of just like oh i I wish i i wish i could do this experience of playing um baseball with my friends um but yeah it's i think it's i I agree like it is like kind of like pitch perfect like it does what it sets out to do like perfectly i'd agree and then uh my last one um uh because uh max contractually says i have to hit my marvel quota uh, it is going to be the Sam Raimi 2002 Tobey Maguire led Spider-Man. Um, and I, obviously this shaped me because of my love of Marvel. I'm not going to get into that too much. Um, but Spider-Man uh, was really the first superhero movie that like I really loved um, because I, I had seen like the bat, like Michael Keaton's Batman and like all the stupid Batman that, that followed that one. And uh I didn't really care for those. They were almost too dark. And Spider-Man brought to me a character that I enjoyed already as a kid from like the, the few comic books that I read and presented it in a really fun way. Gave us a great villain and Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin. Um, gave us uh, a really good Tobey Maguire. And just like, I don't think, does anybody dislike the 2002 Spider-Man? Even though it's not part of the MCU and it's not, uh, it's definitely not, I don't know. It might be perfect. <laughs> I don't know if it's perfect, but um, I I gotta I gotta shout the first like comic book movie that I really really loved and uh, gave me more desire to get into the Marvel world to learn more about Spider Man and learn more about those characters. Because after this movie came out, I was buying more books. I wanted to read about all of his villains and all that. So uh, shout out to Spider Man, uh, the 2002 Spider Man, because it definitely <laughs> shaped who I am now. I would say I had a similar experience too. Like I remember seeing it in theaters and just my, my mind was blown. Like this is like amazing. I went out and bought the books and like really that was probably like my descent into Marvel and just really getting into comic books in general. Um, like, you know, the, what a 
powerhouse, I think, for like a lot of people our age because we're both old, Kyle. Yeah. Hey, yeah you said not it, not me. It <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> I think it's important to point out here for the listeners, Kyle and Nor Kenny are old. <laughs> <laughs> thank you they are yeah, mid and early 30s it's uh it's all good it's all good in the hood here i'm late 28 i'm I'm near 30 myself i just like to give them a hard time and it's fun to meme on at this point it's just like how they're gonna continue memeing on me about babylon and la la land <laughs> and i'll continue on memeing about them on being old i guess <laughs> yeah. uh, i guess one of those you can are. control one of them you can't but you know it's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> stop getting older guys jeez well, you want us to die? Day. okay no keep getting older guys please stick around <laughs> one day i one, there's one time in my life where i was a young person that's you max but then you become the old person yeah so. i'm sure just, yeah. just wait live long enough you'll get there <laughs> that's the hope <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kenny, tell us about the movies that shaped you. Um, it's my first movie on the list because we're also contractually obligated to talk about Star Wars each episode. Oh, yeah. Um, I just watched yeah. Empire Strikes Back today. It's the best, the best of the bunch. It was very good. Um, so Star Wars for me came, I got in Star Wars probably when I was like 10, 11, right? And it it was a movie that like I just, it, not not even just a movie, but like a universe that I just sunk into. And I just like, enveloped me and like opened up my imagination to like such a like wild degree um and it was i'm really happy that i got into it during like those awkward preteen years because it almost came like be an escape for me to like you know get out of like the heart get out of the harshness of middle school reality <laughs> and just you know <laughs> hang out in a best friend for a while and explore uh explore the what an, what what is a hyperdrive on an x-wing you know I knew all those things. Um, I don't remember a lot of it now, but um, Star Wars is a really pivotal for me in that regard. Just opening up my imagination and kind of giving me like a really strong escape. Um, and yeah, hopefully, it's gonna do the same thing for Max too. You know, I hope it does, old. man. I hope it does. <laughs> what are you gonna say, Kyle? You don't believe in me? Uh, I I don't. Um, but I would wow. say similar, like Star Wars, I got into a little bit later than you, Kenny. It wasn't quite around 11. I would say it was probably around 13 or 14, 15 for me. It was when they released, when the original trilogy released on DVD. Um, and I was mm-hmm. when I was able to really watch them for the first time. Um, so that was early high school for me. Uh, and I can't say that I got really into it until, um, maybe even like college, like where I had seen the movie and then like, as I w- wanted to watch them again and I want to get into it, it's like, Oh man, these are, these are so phenomenal. Um, so that's why I'm like kind of interested to like how Max is going to keep, continue his journey, uh, through the star Wars stuff. And I think we're going to do an episode directly related to star Wars. So I don't want to get Max's opinion too much. Uh, but as somebody who came to star Wars kind of later in life, I didn't see, I didn't grow up with them. I didn't see them until high school. Uh, I think you can't appreciate them despite not growing up with them. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, to what extent that is yet to be determined, but you can certainly look back at it and understand that it's popular for a reason and it was breaking barriers at the time. And it was uh, just an incredible, epic movie going experience for when it came out. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm really grateful that I, I discovered it as like a kid. You know, I, I got mm-hmm. got to view it from that like ima- place of imagination and wonder. Um, that I think like you know you probably won't be able to get as much out of Max um, or Kyle, but um, yeah, it was really special to me. Still is, you know. Um, but the next movie on my list is kind of like the direct opposite of Star Wars, and that is the movie Contact. Uh, this is 1997, I think, with Jodie Foster. Have either either of you seen this one? I've never even heard of it. I've never seen it. No, I've never seen it. Yeah, okay, so Contact is, it is like, it's basically the movie that kind of like spawned movies like Interstellar, um, The Arrival. Um, it's like kind of like a cerebral sci-fi movie. Um, it talks about like, what if we discover aliens? Like, what if we make contact with uh, um, another entity out in space? What would that look like? And how would humanity react to it? Um, and so like, I think the movie is based off a of Ron L. Hubbard novel, if I'm not mistaken. Um I the Scientologist. People, yeah, I, think that's what so. I was about to ask. Not, <laughs> Is there another Ron Hubbard? That's not great. But um, <laughs> it's a, it's it's by, it's by Carl Sagan. The novel is by Carl, by Carl Sagan. Sagan. Okay, that's a lot oh, better. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but it's a class. I think it's, it's a classic novel. Um. You know, I think one of the things that really separates contact and why, like, at the time, like, I was probably, like, I don't know, 12, 13 when I saw it, is that it, re- it brings in aspects of, like, belief, faith, like, God, even, um, into the movie that, like, I've, I've never seen in a movie like that before. And, like, helps marry the idea of, like, the idea of, like, you know, whatever your belief is with, like, the idea of, like, life beyond us, right? And so, you know, I was, I was like, 12 or 13. It, it kind of blew my mind at that time. And it, it is like the cerebral sci-fi is kind of like one of my favorite genres. Like I, I love the rival. I love like uh, interstellar, um, loved like 2001. Um, so more movies in that vein, um, I'd love to see, but yeah, this had an impact me, um, when I was a kid, um, quite a bit. So I, I like, since you guys haven't seen, I, I'd highly recommend you check it out. I don't think some of it's stuff like may have aged a bit, but I think like at the core of the movie, it's still very good. I'm pretty interested in that. Um, I, as somebody who uh, I, I grew up uh, in a Christian household and going to church and like having and faith and like I, I that's still part of me today. Uh, that aspect of it uh, is really interesting to me. Um, so that is mm-hmm. a movie that I'm going to add to my watch list. I, I hope you pick it to put on our list actually <laughs> at some point. I thought about I thought about it, um, but I figured you guys actually would have seen it already. But you figured wrong. I did. <laughs> Um, so the last movie on my list is uh, Swingers. Um, Vegas Baby? Is, oh, Vegas Baby. Um, so Swingers, like, this is very like typical of me, but like Swingers is like, really important to me, movie to like my early 20s, right? Because um, it's just a movie I really identified with back then. Because it's a movie about like uh, a, a guy getting over a relationship, with a, getting over a breakup with a girl, and trying to just navigate life and love and growing up um in in a world that just seems so uncertain or just is so unfamiliar where you're constantly facing rejection or just heartbreak um and it's it's i think at its core it's a movie about like male insecurity and even like male toxicity a bit and it's just it really shined a light on it in a way that like i identified with because i i was the character that was because uh, he's basically 
the, it was John John Favreau's like like breakout movie. Uh, he directed it, wrote it, and he plays a character who is like surrounded by like these guys who are you know chasing after girls all the time, pretty successful um, in their career or in their love life, and you know he's just struggling. And at the time, like I wasn't an actor or anything, but I identified with him just to, like not and not being at that place where the other people are and just kind of like wondering like, what am I doing wrong? Right. Um, but you know, swingers like my life had a happy ending where he gets a girl, you know, he figures it out, moves on and stuff. But at the time, like it was a movie that I really identified with. And even though like it's a simple movie in terms of like plot, um, structure and all that stuff, I think it's a movie that still holds up in, um, yeah, I still, I, I still, it's been a while since I watched it, but yeah, I, I'd go back and watch it. Was this on our I list, love Kyle? Swingers. Did I miss this? I feel like it might have been on our list, and I I missed it. On one of our like movie lists? Yeah, with with uh, Jeff no. and Jamie. No, I don't think we ever had the swing. What was that? Was, there. Wasn't there a Vegas movie on on our movie list? My, maybe I'm maybe. maybe. Twenty one. Well, it's funny. I I would say Swingers is actually way more like L.A. than Vegas. Like I think like I, it's I known for that. Well, you said Vegas. That famous line. Yeah, because well, it's Vegas. I mean, the baby, famous Vegas. Line is, I've never yeah, seen the first it. Yeah, the first 20 minutes are set in Vegas, but like it, it is about like, because as much as it's about like like rejection of like, uh, and like love, it's also about like the rejection of like in career, because uh, they're all actors trying to make it big in Hollywood and they're just constantly getting rejected at these casting calls and stuff like that. Oh. Um, Rounders is so, the movie I was thinking of. Oh, Rounders is great. But go <laughs> it on. ends in ERS, you know, I was close. <laughs> but yeah swingers i it's it was it's very cliche but at the time it, it meant a lot to me so. hey that's all that yeah swingers is great and vince vaughn hilarious in it yeah like i, I and like some, some things like i i look at that movie and i think like that was probably vince vaughn's best movie like he played that character so well so perfectly oh, let's not go crazy here kenny what is it then kyle wedding crashers for sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean, without a doubt. I don't even know. I've not seen many Vince Vaughn movies except for Wedding Crashers. You know, God, I should have put good. Wedding Crashers on my list because that was maybe the first movie I remember ever purposefully pausing. Like, it was one of those that I watched the unrated version. You just pause it and you're like, nice. Okay. This was- <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen. I, I, did, I didn't. You know that was a. <laughs> I thought I that's know why. Uh, for that. I thought that's why Kenny put Star Wars on there for a uh, Carrie Fisher scene. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, do I have one of those to look forward to? Oh yeah, nice. Um, no, <laughs> maybe I, that, maybe. I, I, in, in all honesty, Wedding Crashers could have been on my list too. <laughs> I love that movie so much. It is. It is genuinely good. It is genuinely good. I feel like I picked some weird one for my list, so I'm gonna try and explain myself here. And I'd like to know. I know you all have seen one of them. I don't know about the other. I've two. seen all three of these. I've seen all. You three have of these. okay. I've great, also, great, yep. perfect. I've seen all three as well. Oh, perfect. It, easy, easy peasy. You're welcome. By the way, you're welcome. That's why I picked them. I knew we could discuss them. The first movie that I think shaped me, and I should clarify in that I saw a lot of movies, but man, I, I mentioned this before. I have a terrible movie or a terrible memory. Like. I forgot about Wedding Crashers until we started talking Vince Vaughn. I was like, oh, yeah, Wedding Crashers. I totally saw that. I remember that. Like, man, trying to think of the movies I watched as a kid is just 
it's difficult for me. Letterboxd wasn't a thing back then. I wasn't able to be like, I watched this movie on this day, and here's what I thought about it. But now I can. Follow us on Letterboxd. The first movie that shaped me, I think, is probably The Strangers, which is probably an odd pick for many. This is a horror movie that came out in 2008. Yeah, 2008, uh, starring Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman. And I think this was, to me, like the scariest horror movie I had seen at the time. At the time. Yeah, I it's mean, been a long I think The Strangers have seen it. I think The Strangers shaped the crap in my pants. That movie was yeah. terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, see, I'm glad to hear you think that because I don't know, like it's been so long since I've seen it, but so you'll notice a trend all three of these movies that I've put on my list are movies that I watched multiple times and introduced to people multiple times regularly. Like growing up my house was kind of like the place to be. Like we had a nice open basement. We would watch movies down there. Like people would come over to our house for hanging out with Sam and hanging out with me and we'd watch movies all the time. And these were like the three that were always on repeat. And the strangers was just a movie that I loved introducing to other people. And looking back at it, like it's, it's under 90 minutes, but it's a very slow paced movie. Like not a lot happens. But what they do with the runtime is really anxiety inducing. I mean, you talk about not being a lot of action. This is definitely that. You talk about it all taking place in a single household. Definitely that. I mean, I'm not going to get super into spoiler territory, but like, it's just, it takes a long time to, to get going and to do its thing. But the whole time, it feels real. Like it's the most realistic or was at the time horror movie to me where I'm watching it and I'm like, this could happen to me like right yeah. now. Like this could, this could happen to me. And I don't think this is a spoiler because I pretty sure it's like on the title of the movie. But if you want no spoilers at all for the strangers turn away now, but this is not really getting in deep, but like, they reveal their motive at one point in time and they're just like because you were home and i'm just like yes. oh my god like, like that's so scary by far, to me dude by far the scariest part was yeah, that it's i like, terrified the heck out of me oh so just being home could get me killed are you right me? it's like answering the door was what got me killed good to know it's like like, <laughs> like and i i grew up a lot at a lake house and not that it's like super confined right like they're neighbors it's whatever but like a lot of people don't live at the lake year round and so like there are times where your nearest neighbor is a few houses down at the very least and it's a freaking like small lake like I, it would not surprise me if that happened to me at, the, at that lake house <laughs> like it just felt so real to me like something that it was the first scary movie i think that terrified me not because of something i had never seen but because of something that felt like it actually could happen and it stuck with me for a long time one scene in particular where nothing happens but it shows you the bad guy in the background and it is just like eerie beyond belief like just thinking about it makes the the hair stand up on the back of my neck a little bit because like she has no idea and he's just watching her and it's terrifying 
but I don't know. I'm a big horror guy. I love scary movies. And The Strangers, I think, to me, was was what thrusted that into, like, my preferences. It was what catapulted horror movies into something that I really, really enjoyed. I was going to say, the masks are also bone-chilling. I've also not seen the sequel, but uh, actually the girl who played Dollface is the daughter of one of my dad's friends. She's from Lexington, Kentucky. So... In the second one, not the first one. Oh, what were you going to say, Kenny? Or what were you thinking? No, just, I, I mean, I think The Stranger is like a really affecting film. Um, it'd probably be one of my top, I don't know, I made a top 10 horror list, movie list, but it'd probably be a top 10 for me. Dude, that's just, so cool. Because, yeah, because it is just like so like, I don't know, it, it is so realistic and just like tense. It, the movie's just tense throughout, right? Yeah. Oh. And just because it is like, the stakes are low, right? I mean, they're not low, but like it's just a couple just trying to survive, and it's just yeah, uh, yeah. I remember it was a movie that I watched pretty early on with my my wife, yeah. um, and it's just like I was just because uh, she's like such a horror movie fiend, like it, nothing affects her. Mm-hmm. But even I think even that movie, just like wow, that just that kind of was it was like a punch to the gut, right? And I tell you what, Merle Haggard's Mama tried just playing over like everything that's going on when the juke or when the record player gets stuck and whatnot. And I'm just yeah. like, Oh, like that song, even to this day, if I hear that song, I'm just like instant, the strangers, like that's what comes to mind instantly. But yeah, it's certainly, I don't know how it holds up again. I need to watch it. It's probably not my favorite horror movie. There are definitely others I prefer now, but like, Oh, it just launched me into the stratosphere as far as enjoying horror films. I I feel like this is like a movie that would hold up just because like there's not like mm-hmm. a lot of just like a, a weird effects and stuff. Yeah. The it's just the 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 movie is good because of the tension it builds and because of the the choices they make with what they show and what they don't. Yeah, that's totally fair. Totally fair. Now, to, taking a a hard left turn out of the strangers, we have the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> this is this is a movie musical, a very, very weird movie musical. Very weird. And if you've not seen it, I don't know what you're doing with your lives because it's incredibly popular, whether it's because it's well-loved or not is a whole different story, but it's just so unique in its own right. It's I was a big theater guy, a big musical guy. I love musicals. I love theater. I went to see the live showing of Rocky Horror multiple times at like the age of 10, 11, 12, something like that. Like I just adored it. And obviously my friend group was that theater crowd too. So like I never had anyone tell me, and maybe it would have shaped me differently, but I never had anyone tell me like, that's a stupid movie when I was growing up. <laughs> like everyone I knew was also into Rocky Horror Picture Show. So like it worked out for me, but it's got like meatloaf in it. It's got Tim Curry in it. It's so unique and outlandish. And there's such there's songs that are just fun to listen to. Even if you're not watching the movie or not, you've got the time warp. You've got meatloaf song. It's all about it. I think this is the movie that whether I whether I would normally attribute it to it or not, I think it deserves credit for making me feel like I can be myself. I think it just does a very good job at being so out there and so weird. And these people are just comfortable in, in, in their own bodies and in their lives. And 
it's just you know it's one of those things that it just kind of it just made me feel like this is this is cool like this is it's fine to be who you are and be who you want to be and sing songs and do whatever you want to do and i to me i think that it was just a, a very impactful movie not only for my enjoyment of musicals and movie musicals but also just for like how i looked at myself as a young teenager and i was like look it's i i'm weird too and it's that's fine it's okay to be that way so i love rocky horror picture show but how do you all feel about it um i was, I was waiting for Kenny <laughs> to go i'll go um rocky horror picture show is not one i necessarily grew up with i i saw it for the first time in high school um because one of my friends at the time uh really liked it and he uh we watched it at his house one night when like on dvd or something um and uh i enjoyed it i think i would enjoy it more if like i had the full experience of like seeing it in like a theater uh when everybody's doing like the dress up and the and the the toast and the what the whatever they bring to the theater yeah um, it's definitely the best experience live but I, I see why people love it uh it's probably the same reason like one of the same reasons why like billy madison is it's just like the uniqueness of some of the scenes and like the weirdness of it now rocky horror picture show is much more unique and weird than like billy madison but it's for the same thing like you you do like see that and you're like you're so used to everything being so like white collar and cuff like a certain clean cut as a kid and then to see a movie like that like oh people are people are different uh and you're you're right that is okay and people are free to be however they want to be and and it's fun and what makes the world go around and like so you're right i just don't know if it if seeing it for the first time in high school hits this on dvd in my friend's basement hits the same way um if that's make if that yeah. makes any sense i imagine obviously my first viewing of this was not a live viewing but i would i don't have the memory to tell me for sure one way or another i would bet that my first viewing of this was with other people who had seen it before like it wasn't like i was watching this in my basement alone and really connected to it so deeply it was probably yeah. one of those things where although i was not at a live show other people that had probably already been in their lives were there and were calling out some of the fun things. And it was an enjoyable experience nonetheless. And I, I imagine it might not have stuck with me the same way if it weren't for that experience. Yeah. I think I probably might, my experience is probably the same as Kyle's. Like, I don't remember very much about the movie. Um, I remember just watching it probably when I was like a teenager and it just, you know, the scenes stick with me and like some of the songs stick with me, but like, uh, it's just, it's just I saw it so long ago that I, I it's probably probably do for you watching, um, you know, even see like pricing in person. Yeah, but I always do appreciate and like movies about like the misfits who are able to, um, who band together and everyone else is the misfit, right? Those are kind of like movies that, uh, or TV shows that I really like. Like, like again, very different movie, very different thing. But like the Owl House, which I've talked about before, is kind of like that, right? That's a, that's a central theme to that. I think that's a central theme to like Rocky Horror too. So yeah, yeah, it's definitely not a movie for everyone. I imagine it had a very rocky release, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Boo. But uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. I'll be here all night. <laughs> but uh, it's one that sticks with me for sure. Now I've talked about this next one on the show before, but it was my introduction to Edgar Wright and it's Shaun of the Dead. 
this is the first movie that I saw from Edgar Wright, the first of the Cornetto trilogy. And to me, it really opened my eyes to what a smart movie can be. And I say that without too much emphasis, but I was not a huge movie guy growing up. I liked movies. I've seen plenty of movies, but like I never really cared about them so much. And then I saw Shaun of the Dead and it felt so smart. The the cuts, the pacing, the jokes. There were lots of things throughout that just made me appreciate filmmaking. It was probably the first movie to ever be like this like it made I'm sure there's many a movies before I've seen that were great movies, fantastic movies, but Shaun of the Dead was maybe the first that made me connect and be like someone made this and like someone really smart made this and like they did that for a reason and it made me think about why they chose this song here or this cut here and I love how the first five minutes of Shaun of the Dead they explain the entire story that's going to happen throughout but of course you don't know that on your first viewing and it's just like I love so many aspects of Shaun of the Dead it is one of my favorite films of all time it used to be my favorite Edgar Wright film. It's probably below Hot Fuzz at this point in time, but they are both neck and neck. And truthfully, I can't say much more to it other than I adore this film. I've watched it dozens of times. I remember watching this before I should have and counting the number of F-bombs that were dropped in Shaun of the Dead, like tallying it up on a piece of paper and being like, look, look, there were 72. I don't remember how many it was, whatever it was, but I just remember it. And it was one of those things that I just, I just watched <laughs> religiously. I love Shaun of the Dead so much. And it really just was the first movie to give me such an appreciation for film. Yeah. I, I like Shaun of the Dead. Okay. Uh, I, one of the things right. you, you ending the podcast. <laughs> thanks everybody. Have a good night. Just kidding. Kyle, I would like to, to say there's, there's one thing that you said that I find really interesting and something that I've over the last like two minutes I've been trying to think of is you said Shaun of the Dead made you start was the first film that made you start appreciating film mm-hmm. or like what movies are how movies are structured. And I cannot think of what that is for me. I, I've always been a movie person. I've liked movies literally my entire life. I don't know what what movie was like the first one. Where I was like, wow. This is like, this is truly art. Um, because like as a kid, I was watching Billy Madison in the Sandlot, which is not necessarily uh, like what Shaun of the Dead is. Um, mm-hmm. So that's just a really interesting way uh, of looking at this question, I think. Uh, I like that. Yeah, I think it's just, like I said, I saw a lot of movies, but it was something about it that just made me want to rewatch it and pay attention, right? Like, I've seen plenty of movies, but no movie made me want to dissect it, for lack of a better term, the way that Shaun of the Dead did. I don't think it's the greatest movie of all time or anything like that. I don't even think it's Edgar Wright's best work, but it took it from being a, I'm chilling and watching a movie, to like, oh. There are layers. Yeah, this is art. Like People spend their lives creating this not just for us to sit and laugh, but for us to consume and appreciate. So I couldn't tell you why it did that for me, but I just remember growing up that it was the, the, the turning point really for like, okay, there's more to movies than just a picture on a screen. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. 
it's yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I like Shaun of the Dead quite a bit, but it's interesting that this is the movie that made you appreciate. I don't know. Yeah, kind of echoing Kyle said. Yeah, I will say that I think a there's a really good video on YouTube that I watched a few years back um, from every frame of painting. And they did a video on Edgar Wright titled How to Do Visual Comedy. And I think in general that that is an excellent video to watch if you want to get an idea of why I think his works are so good and so well done. And there's purpose in every shot and every movement and cut and pacing. And I'm a big lover and appreciator of all of his Cornetto trilogy movies. And I know not everyone is, and it's not going to be for everyone. That's totally fine. But like for me, it's it's hard to do it better. I think I'm going to have to add Baby Driver to our list just to get you to watch it, Kyle, because I really think you'll like Baby Driver. I think I will, too. Uh, Maybe it'll I, make you appreciate com- Edgar Wright. <laughs> I like Edgar Wright. I like Scott Pilgrim. I like Last Night in Soho. I like Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. I like these movies. Um, I just don't think Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz are his best movies. Is the thing. Yeah, um, that's fair. You're wrong, but that's fair. One of the things that I find interesting about your three movies, though, Max, is that they're all in some way connected to horror. You know, yeah. I guess you're right. Uh, I am a big lover of horror films. I mean, it's interesting. We just finished watching the entire Scream franchise. It's a big blind spot. But I grew up watching Friday the 13th. I grew up watching The Strangers. I'm sure there's a dozen others that I could say, but those, those Friday the 13th, The Strangers, all the paranormal activities, Blair Witch Project, like those are the ones that really meant something to me. And I don't know why. I think I like being scared. And I think to me, horror is a genre that is kind of double-sided because it makes you scared, yet at the same time, it's also very funny. Like if you're watching it with someone else and they get scared, it's it's hilarious to laugh at other people getting scared. And it just like it's one of those things that there's so much rewatchability to me for horror movies that I can just watch them over and over. You've always said uh, that you like movies that make you feel emotions. Yeah. And horror obviously brings out a big one. Yeah, um, true. Being frightened is like a big emotion. Uh, I will also say like horror movies can also have some type of commentary. and. Uh, I want to, I want to go back to my list. I'm going to take up a little bit more time here. <laughs> uh, I really think scream probably should have been on my list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know what? Like scream might be my film that made me appreciate movies for, I mean, cause it's so meta. That's it's so meta. It's yeah, like, that's a good call out. It's the first time where you really like, it takes the horror genre and like, looks at it inside of itself and i just that is one of the times where yeah you like you can dissect that movie despite it just being a silly slasher movie um that's kind of ridiculous and like has memed itself into oblivion with some of the sequels uh which i also adore um but like yeah scream one uh kind of did that for me as a kid i i so i gotta i gotta throw that on my list as a as an also ran there you go kenny what's yours do you have one uh, mine would actually probably be 2001. I still Odyssey. gotta watch that. Um, man. I think it's some movie that is just atypical and like, especially probably for the time. And like, it's just visually purposeful, like in terms of like composition and shots. It has to be right. And there's no, there's no mm-hmm. dialogue for the first or last 30 minutes, right? Yeah. What? Um, yeah. Really? 
You, yeah, dude. I've never seen it, but I just know these facts about it. It's such a yeah, man. Yeah, it was. It was a movie I watched probably when I was like, or like I don't know, like a later teen. It was just kind of like I remember, like it just kind of blew my mind, right? And it, again, it's like one of those like cerebral sci-fi films yeah. that, like, you know, has like an ending where like you you have to think about and ponder upon it. So I think it's just like that plus like the overall just like the the way that like it's just a movie like you have to think like why did why did he do this why did he choose these mm-hmm. why why did he make these decisions mm-hmm. right it's like an, an it's not a movie you can just take at face value yeah. it's just like you have to like it forces you to dig into it so um that was probably the movie that made me go wow movies yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> hey movies eh what how, you guys hear about these movies <laughs> they're freaking wild I hear they're pretty good man. <laughs> If you like movies and you want to talk more about movies, make sure you join our Discord. The link will be in the show notes below. Thank you for listening to Board Game Box Office. We appreciate you being here. If you want to talk about your most influential movies, the movies that shaped you, or just anything games and movies in general, we'd be happy to chat with you there. We'll see you next week. All right, let's get out of here. See y'all.